Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. When you see a hurricane, a wildfire, a tornado, you may not consider moving towards it. But today you'll hear from people who do, including a retired smoke jumper, which is a firefighter who jumps out of an airplane and into the fire. He talks about what he's seeing on the West Coast. It's utter chaos out here. It's almost where you move your people off and just protect uh, life and limb. And you'll meet a tornado hunter who knows how to act quickly when things are getting hairy. And very quickly, a satellite tornado formed, blows up this building that's right next to us. I have never rolled up a window so quickly in my life. Was it an electric window or was it the handle type? It was a handle one. So oh, it was no. just like... <laughs> and a hurricane hunter tells us about the surprising nuances from inside a storm. It can be bumpy, you get a lot of turbulence, but then you get to the other side where there aren't, there isn't a lot of rain at all. And it's just totally calm. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Audacious after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. I've had a recurring dream ever since I was a little kid. I'm playing in the front yard of the house I grew up in, and suddenly the atmosphere around me changes. I feel an ominous breeze on my face. I look up, and barreling down the street is a tornado headed straight for me. I turn to run, and the dream ends. We'll save the dream interpretation for another show, but I think my compulsion to run away from dangerous weather in my dreams and in real life is probably shared by a lot of people. But today, the folks you're going to meet go towards the danger to stop it or to document it so we can understand it better. This hour, you'll hear from a meteorologist who chases tornadoes, a hurricane hunter with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and you'll hear from a retired smoke jumper someone who drops out of an airplane in remote locations to get to the base of fires so they can stop them from spreading. And that's where we'll start. By now, you've seen the headlines. Death toll reaches 35 from West Coast fires. The western U.S. has the worst air quality in the world. Resources stretched thin for firefighters battling historic wildfires. Starting as early as April, over 100 fires have burnt more than 4.6 million acres in the West. The smoke has spread through the East Coast and has made its way to Europe. And fire season isn't over yet. What are some of the main causes of this record-setting destruction? A recent Stanford University study found that since the 1980s, California's average temperature during the wildfire season has risen more than 2 degrees Fahrenheit, and overall precipitation in the season has dropped by 30%. This increased heat and drought means that all that debris in all those forests are really dry. So when lightning strikes or people use explosives in their gender reveal party for serious, fires are much more likely to catch and spread. Chuck Sheely joined me to talk about the fires. He's a retired smoke jumper, and he's the editor of Smoke Jumper Magazine, a quarterly publication for members of the National Smoke Jumper Association. He worked for 34 years with the Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management and Firefighting, and we recorded our conversation on Monday, September 14th. I asked him to tell me what he was seeing out there in California. It's utter chaos out here. Uh, The fire situation has gotten 
to the point where um, it's almost where you move your people off and just protect uh, life and limb. Uh, I'm sitting here in Chico, which is a hundred miles north of Sacramento, and it's overcast. We haven't seen the sun for a couple of days. Right now, we're I'd say 300 yards visibility with smoke and ash. Have you ever seen anything like this? Well, yes. Chico is located 15 miles from Paradise. Are you familiar with the campfire? Yes, unfortunately. Yes. Okay, we're just down the hill from Paradise, and and the campfire burned right to the edge of Chico. So uh, the campfire, the first day of the campfire, it was absolutely dark in Chico. In other words, the streetlights came on. I've never seen anything like that. But next to the campfire, uh, I haven't seen anything like this. I want to talk about your experience smoke jumping. And on the East Coast, I don't think a lot of us know what that there is a smoke jumper or what they do. So can you tell me in a nutshell, what does a smoke jumper do? Sure, you betcha. And even on the West Coast, a lot of people don't know what smoke jumpers are. And the object of smoke jumping when it started was to place a firefighter on the ground as quick as possible in inaccessible places putting them there by parachute. So 1940 started the first smoke jumper program in the United States, and it's gone and expanded since that time. Prior to the United States, actually the Soviet Union uh, started their smoke jumper program in 1936, so they were a tad bit ahead of us. So a firefighter with wings is a good way to describe it. I would, yeah, you, you betcha. It's called an aerial delivered firefighter. When the alarm goes off, what is put on your body as a smoke jumper? Take me from the top of the head to the bottom of that person. What is on them? The outfit that the smoke jumpers wear, a padded uh, outfit, was is you know essentially it goes right back to the same design as they created back in 1940. Uh, the materials have changed now. You have a padded pair of pants with suspenders. You have a jump jacket. Uh, all of this is padded. Uh, you have uh, a helmet. Okay, when I jumped in my days, it was a football helmet with a wire mask. They've adapted to lighter helmets now, but it's still essentially the same outfit that uh, that was created 80 years ago, just with modernization and different fabrics. So talk me through some of the things that firefighters do once they're on the ground in the wild up against a fire. I mean, is the is the idea to get water on some stuff, to chop down some trees? What are some of the things that they're going to do specifically? <laughs> I, I like the term water. If you're a smoke jumper, the only water you have is in your canteen, um, unless you're able to jump by a stream or something. Wildland firefighters, when you reach a fire, the object is to separate the fire from the fuel, and that is to build a fire line. Uh, the width of your fire line depends on the number of personnel you have, uh, how fast the fire is burning, and so forth. Uh, the earlier you get to the fire, the easier it is to control. So uh, you would build a fire line. It could be anywhere from a couple feet wide to six feet wide uh, down to what's called mineral soil. In other words, separate the burning and the fire from uh, the fuel. So a lot of chopping and digging 
Exactly. Uh, chopping, digging, and scraping. So that's grueling work. And these people have to be there for, what, up to three days, maybe longer? You know, it just depends. If, uh, In my estimation, if smoke jumpers are used correctly, uh, they will be initial attack. And uh, they should be there to keep that fire as small as possible and contain it. And they should be re- relieved with ground type people. In other words, rotate the smoke jumpers and get them back into the system so they could be used again. However, uh, depending on where you're at and what the fires are, yes, you can be there for a number of days. So they got to have some beef jerky and other delicious compact food. You're usually uh, dropped with uh, MREs, which are a military ration, and that's that's good for a couple days. Uh, depending, you know, when I jumped up in Alaska, uh, up there we were on fires longer. You know, we could be there for a couple weeks, and then you would be getting fresh food drops. When is fire season? How do they figure that out, and has it changed? Fire season's changed drastically in the past 20 years or so and and then uh kion you're looking at what we're doing today uh, you're beginning to wonder if there is a end of fire season especially out here in california uh fire season used to be three or four months uh looking back at the campfire uh two years ago when we saw a town of 27,000 people uh wiped off the map in a period of hours that was november the 8th of all things so uh, and we're going to see uh, year in and year out, the fire season is going to be getting longer. Uh, what's the answer to handling all this? Who knows? Now, I know that big fires can be started in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's environmental. Sometimes it's uh, someone flicks the wrong cigarette at the wrong place. Sometimes it's a gender reveal party. Um, how are most of the firefighters you're seeing lately being started? We keep seeing this thing uh, over public television and radio and uh, hear from all the PR people that 87% of the fires are man-caused. But we've got to get right down to the fires that are burning in the forest areas of the western United States, and the majority of those are lightning-caused. Uh, it just depends on population. The ones that smoke jumpers should be getting to, in my estimation, are lightning-caused fires. And I'm, I'm going to say, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, August the 17th, we had something like 12,000 lightning strikes uh, here in Northern California. Uh, that starts an awful lot of fire. I imagine you've kept track of how many jumps you've done. So how many have you done? I have. I've done 140, uh, which is a small number compared to compared to the current smoke jumpers uh, who uh, stay at it as a career and year after year after year. So, but uh, 140 over a 13 year period um, took me a lot of places. And what does that do to your body? Combining the the thrill of it and your heart racing and the mental stress and excitement of it and hitting the ground and all that digging, like what what has this career done to your body? It's something that catches up and bites you in the butt years later. You know, I've had, uh, let me see, four knee operations and a knee replacement on on the right leg. 
left, I've had two ankle operations and an ankle replacement, four hernia operations, a torn shoulder. That's it right off the cuff. Were you paid enough? Like, was the money good? Uh, $2.50 an hour. Um, Most people, jumpers I've talked to, that did it as college students would have done it for 50 cents an hour. That was, it was the job. It was the people you meet, the people or something else. Nowadays, when you have the more or less permanent smoke jumper, uh, they are not paid enough. Uh, Federal firefighters are not paid enough. How much are they paid? Uh, A smoke jumper with a heck of a lot of overtime may make 50,000 a year. Uh, that's an awful lot of work. That's an awful lot of effort uh, to make that amount of money. If you had a magic wand and smoke jumpers would have the best possible technology to do the most effective possible job, what would they have in the planes, the gear, magic wand, go? (laughs) The magic wand is to call smoke jumpers earlier. In other words, I'm looking at a fire right now that's uh, outside of Chico where I'm living. We had a town burn up the other day, uh, a town called, little town in the mountain called Berry Creek. Okay, so far they've dug uh, 10 fatalities out and there's still more to go. Uh, that fire started August the 17th on the Plumas Forest. And I checked my records and I'm seeing lightning storm. Then I looked at the smoke jumper base in Reading. How many jumpers were sitting that day? 35. How many were used? Zero. Looking forward, it's hard to be optimistic. Fires, as you say, keep getting bigger. There's more damage. Uh, Some people think of fire in the way that it cleanses things, in the way that it starts things over, right? But these are real lives. This is this is our home. And so when you think about the future of fires in our country, on our continent, what do you really see and what do you really feel? Here's the kickback that because we've been fighting fires and we put them out, we had this tremendous buildup of fuel load in the forest. Well, no doubt about that. We probably put out thousands of fires we should have let burn in the past. But at the same time, we've got a heck of a lot more people in the country, and this is what the citizens demanded, that these fires be put out. Uh, What do I see in the future? I mean, people are moving into the woods. Uh, It seems like uh, people want to get out in the woods. They don't want government to look out for them. They want to be left alone. But then when they're getting burned out, they're wondering why why their forests are burning up. It's a tough situation. What do I see in the future? It's going to be a lot worse than it is today. So today, the 13th of September, we're seeing so much damage on the West Coast. Wildfires are ravaging California, Oregon, Washington. Satellite images are breathtaking. There are people posting pictures of the red sky. My brother lives in Los Angeles with his wife, and they've put an air filter in front of their box fan to try to get some sort of cleaner air in their home. I wonder what you think the worst case scenario is. I look at it this way. The Forest Service or the fire agencies have increased their fire budget to $5 billion, with a B, a year. 
At the same time in the budget, they've in decreased the treatment of the forest budget by a hundred million. You know, this is like uh, relating it to COVID. It's like, yeah, we're going to build more respirators, but let's forget the vaccine. Uh, I'm thinking, why don't we turn around and put a couple billion dollars a year into treatment of our forest, reduce the fuel load? For crying out loud, as a teacher, what we need in, in the United States right now is jobs for our young people. People are going to have to go back and look into the history of the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 30s, how it put six million young men to work. Well, let's put money into our own country here, and we could get out and we could put, holy Toledo, these people could work year-round on reducing fuel load in the forest. And by reducing fuel load, you don't, that doesn't mean you got to burn it and put more carbon into the air. We need to really get serious about preventing the disease rather than treating it. And when you have an emergency situation, which you have in wildfire, uh, there's no limit, deep pockets. Uh, you spend every bit of money you have on the uh, fighting a wildfire. People do not think about prevention. Well, I have asked everything I wanted to ask you. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you say? No, I've been having a good time. Uh, <laughs> Me too, Chuck. I just love this. I love to talk to somebody in the East Coast. The more we could spread it, the better. Uh, to spread the word, not the fire. <laughs> thank you for clarifying, Chuck. And thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, yeah. Gee whiz, I really appreciate this. Thank you. Bye now. He's a small jumper falling from the sky. That was Chuck Sheely, veteran smoke jumper and editor of Smoke Jumper magazine. For more, visit smokejumpers.com. When we get back. As the wind started increasing, my mom was like freaking out and telling us, hey, we need to get in the house. And I'm sitting there like, well, this is cool. How <laughs> <laughs> life as a tornado hunter starts young. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. He's chasing tornadoes, I'm just waiting calmly, chasing hell. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Even though tornadoes are fairly uncommon here in New England, they are still something we've been taught to fear. Besides the fear we felt while watching The Twister and The Wizard of Oz, we've seen terrifying footage of tornadoes in real life. Like in 2011, when three people were killed by a tornado in Springfield, Massachusetts. That same year, there was a record-setting tornado in Joplin, Missouri. that killed 158 people and caused $2.8 billion worth of damage, the costliest single tornado in U.S. history. Some of the most striking footage of tornadoes comes from people like meteorologist and tornado chaser Justin Drake. He chases all sorts of extreme weather as a regular focus of the Weather Channel's Storm Chasers, and he went viral during Hurricane Irma in 2017 when he was outside in the Florida Keys recording wind gusts of 117 miles per hour. I asked Justin to take me way back to his earliest memory of being attracted to extreme weather. 
One day I was outside just playing with my brothers and whatnot, and a squall line was about to come through. It was just a line of thunderstorms with some very high winds. And of course, as the wind started increasing, my mom was like freaking out and telling us, hey, we need to get in the house. And I'm sitting there like, well, this is cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of steered like my journey in life from there. And the thing is, is I, I just like being out in the element. Like I just find weather in general interesting. And being a meteorologist, a lot of meteorologists, you kind of think of the dude that's behind the camera telling you what the temperature is going to be like. You know? Not wearing green. Right. right. <laughs> Stuff like that. They're, they're always behind the scenes. Like they're not actually out in the event experiencing it. And that's kind of what I like to do. Like I like to not only be able to tell you that you're going to have a nice storm, but be out there in and be able to see it unfold in person. And not only do I like forecasting it, but just being out there in the elements is also the very cool thing that I enjoy. Talk me through a tornado day. How does it begin? And ideally, how does it end? What do you have? I don't know. Let's say like an average day, I wake up about eight, look at all the models, look at surface observations, make what my forecast is to pinpoint where I need to be at. Then you get in your car, go on your drive. So, so you sit in that area, wait for storms to develop. And then once that happens, you just chase them in there and just watch as the storm develops, see as it organizes. And then if it's a good day and you get what you want, that's when you're going to have that storm produce a tornado. And from there, the goal is, is hey, let's get as close to it and document it as best we can. So, I mean, I'll be honest with you. When you see some of my video, you're probably going to be like, man, this guy is crazy because I'll get close. Me and my buddy, I chase with Simon. I mean, we'll get as close as is safely possible and if it's a night if it's one of those slow moving thunderstorms where the tornado's not moving that quickly i mean you basically can get almost as close to it right before the debris hits you because it's just sitting there you can just inch closer and closer to it and you can get that dramatic video that i'm sure that you have seen before where it's like man they're <laughs> they're almost touching it <laughs> how do you know though how do you know how to be in the safe place is a tornado predictable in the way that you can predict how safe you are. What is that margin of error? Well, generally speaking, the tornado is going to move with the storm. So like if your storm's moving east or it's northeast, the tornado is gonna follow that path as well. Look to see how the tornado is moving with respect to the horizon view. Like if it's moving from right to left or left to right, then it's not moving towards you because it's changing directions along the horizon. Now, if it's not moving in that direction and it's just like it's getting bigger, yeah, it's, it's moving towards you. That's a clue. <laughs> yeah. Right, so that's a very quick way to know exactly how it's moving. And like I said, in general, it's going to move the same direction as the storm. When is a tornado considered a tornado? What's the difference between a tornado and almost a tornado? Well, in order to be a tornado, the circulation has to be reaching the ground. So if you see just a funnel cloud, but you're not seeing it pick up any type of debris or anything like that, it's still at that point just a funnel cloud. So the key thing you want to look for is, do you see debris? Is there some type of ground circulation? At that point, that's when you start getting happy because you have a tornado then. So the measure of a tornado isn't necessarily wind speed because you can't necessarily get right up into it and measure the wind speed. It's it's a retroactive based on how much damage it causes. So there's where it gets interesting and there's some kind of misconceptions when it comes to the ES scale. So there are wind speeds that are associated with the the EF scale. The thing is, though, is that in order to know how strong those winds are, it has to do some damage. So there's kind of two aspects to it. Like, for example, an EF5 is a tornado that has 200 mile per hour winds or above. 
the only way we can accurately at any point know if it had those types of winds is seeing if it destroyed something that would indicate the winds were that strong. So that's kind of how the EF scale works. So if it's a, if it's a tornado where you can look at them and tell like, yeah, that's a high caliber tornado. That is something that if it hits something, it would be a four or a five. If it just hit out in the middle of nowhere, it doesn't have anything to destroy for it to ultimately get that type of rating. Whoa. Now, when I think about tornado locations, they I certainly don't think about, you know, Siberia or other parts of the world. Where in the world do we get the most tornadoes and why? It would be the United States. We have the Gulf of Mexico and that's your moisture source. So you have to have an area where you can get what's called a cap, which puts a lid on storms to develop during the beginning of the day so you can develop that instability. You can get the air to heat up, get the instability to form so that you can get explosive thunderstorms. And the area that we have that produces that cap is the Rocky Mountains. They have an integral part in why we get the destructive thunderstorms and tornadoes we do because that higher elevation, it gets just as warm up there as it does down here like in Topeka. Like you go up to um, Denver and that region, oh, they can get to 100, just like any other area that's further out to the east that's lower in elevation. And that hot air, as it moves eastward, it stays higher up in the atmosphere and it's that cap that can develop and really keep storms from forming until later on in the day as the surface of the air starts to heat up and then it can burst through that cap and then that's how you get your explosive thunderstorms that can produce tornadoes later on. Speaking of patterns, have you seen a change in any patterns over the course of the time you've been doing this? You know, it's kind of counterintuitive to what most people think, but honestly, like the past five years or so, we really haven't been in a great, like sustained weather pattern for a tornado. So actually like this year, for example, Kansas has a record low for tornadoes for the year. Yeah, yeah, right for 20. You're like, we're actually low in stuff. I know, in 2020, we are having fewer tornadoes. This doesn't make any sense. During the history, like the recorded history that we have that's accurate for tornadoes, you have these lows where you have highs and then you have a few years when it kind of dips down and it's below average and then you get above average again. So we just might be one of those four to five year lows when it calms down for a bit before, you know. So you're saying just you wait. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Will you tell me the story of the scariest or most in awe you've been of a tornado? It definitely probably would have to be the uh, El Reno tornado from back in 2013. That to this day is still the largest tornado in history. It was 2.6 miles wide. Um, that is also the tornado that unfortunately killed uh, the Samaritans and Carl Young. So that was kind of the first documented event like of a tornado killing uh, storm chaser. Right? It went from a mile wide to 2.6 miles wide. And like, I think it was like a matter of like, three or four minutes, somewhere around there, like some crazy short amount of time. And that's just because of how ridiculous the conditions were that day for tornadoes. Those, there was a lot of people that got really close to being killed by that tornado. We start booking it off to the east so we can get out the way of the tornado. And very quickly, a satellite tornado formed, blows up this building that's right next to us. I have never rolled up a window so quickly. <laughs> Was it an electric window or was it the handle tag? It was a handle one. So oh, it was no. just like, <laughs> damn near ripped it off trying to, get, right, trying to get it closed. And then the tornado tapped us to where we almost got knocked off the road as we were trying to get away. But luckily, Simon was a really good driver. He was driving at the time. But that was probably the most intense chase we've had as far as a tornado goes. 
Are there different kinds of air raid sirens for tornadoes? And if so, which one's your favorite? Most of the sirens really much all sound the same. Um, What's kind of gotten interesting over the years is that, like, when I was younger, the tornado sirens were only sounded for tornado warrants, period. And we've kind of gone away from that as a country, so to speak. Like, different regions now, they're even doing it for, like, if it's a severe thunderstorm warning where they like are positive, there's going to be really strong winds. They'll si- they will sound them for that as well now. So, which I don't know how I quite feel about that quite yet because one challenge we're having right now in the meteorological community is getting people to heed the warnings. I've never heard one in real life, and just the mere thought of it terrifies me to no end, which is good programming for me, right? I mean, it's good. Right, yeah, and that's kind of what we wanted to do, but when you just do it 15 times and it's really not for a tornado, whereas sooner or later, that fear you have of it, it, it goes away. It's just natural. That's just how it works. So that's kind of like sometimes like maybe we should leave that particular sound because it's really the same sound everywhere. We should probably just reserve it for when it's an actual tornado. And come up with like, you know, some sort of maybe a Murphy Brown theme song for <laughs> when it's just, you know, it's not going to be nice outside, but you're going to probably be okay. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm wondering because there are tornadoes in so many places in, in this country, um, what are some really good pieces of advice once they hear that alarm and it is for real uh, there are some people who think they should be doing certain things like hiding in a bathtub and or under a table and going in the basement if there is one opening the windows what are some things people should definitely do and what are some things people think they should and they are totally wrong well you just mentioned one where they definitely should not because it's one of those old adages which is do not b- bother opening the windows uh my mother actually used to do that when i was younger too so i i know that's one of them that used to stick around where your windows being open listen it, whether they're open or closed if it's a tornado and it's going to hit your house that those windows aren't going to do anything <laughs> just get to the basement that is I always tell people all the time that is the number one safest place you can be is being underground. If you don't have a basement, if you have some type of storm shelter, like um, in Oklahoma, where a lot of the houses, believe it or not, don't have basements, what's become really popular is uh, these uh, storm shelters that they have built that are underground. You can actually get one made pretty cheaply, like for your garage, where they just dig a hole in your garage, slap a door on it, you can go in there. Which is actually really helpful for the rest of 2020. Right, <laughs> no, right. At this point, right, you ain't, you can't get COVID if you're underground by yourself. So you know, yeah, that is a bad advice. <laughs> Last but not least, if you have to, um, just get in the interior most uh, room in your house. Get down somewhere, put something over you, so that uh, you can protect yourself from any type of uh, debris if your house gets hit. Um, and those pretty much are the best things you can do if you are in a trailer mobile home do not take shelter in that whatever you do get into something else because those things do not do well in tornadoes they get torn to shreds they get picked up and thrown which that's another reason why again you don't ever want to be in a car like if a tornado is about to hit you you must get out of that vehicle because those just get tossed and i know it's kind of counterintuitive you're like well the car at least there's something to protect me as opposed to like me being out in the ditch but if a tornado picks you up and throws you, you only weigh, let's say the average person, about 150 pounds. You're only 150 pounds getting thrown away. That's a lot different than you're in a 3,000 pound vehicle that gets tossed and then it just gets crushed like a pop can. And now you're in it. And when it gets crushed, you get crushed. 
I wonder, how do you make a living doing this sort of work? I mean, I imagine that you don't make these videos just to upload them to Snapchat or something. So where do these videos go and how do you make a living? When we go out there, we get the video, we make what we call a package, which is basically just the highlights of our chase. And so like, we know the certain things that a lot of the news stations really like when it comes to video. So they like, hey, all some type of damage, just so you can see what the impact of the storm was, of course. Um, of course, the big thing is the tornado. For a really good video, like what's what's a good price? I mean, if it's a if it's really good video, oh, they'll pay for it. <laughs> so if it's oh, you're a, talking like thousands. Yes, if it's a notorious tornado, yes, they will definitely pay thousands. So it must be like an interesting duality of feelings because, in one way, this sucks because someone's home is in the air. In another way, holy crap, this is going to make a lot of money. At the same time. Yep. When I'm out there, like I'm, I'm kind of in awe and I'm having this adrenaline rush because I'm now seeing like all these things with nature unfolding right in front of me. I'm out there in the elements. I enjoy that type of stuff. But of course, like as that's going on, like I'm seeing people's houses get destroyed or even worse than that. Like there's been several times now where like we've been there right after the tornado hit and like we're seeing people that are dead or people that are like bleeding everywhere. They're coming out of their houses. Like they're in awe, they're in shock because something really bad just happened and they don't even know how to process it. So there's always that kind of letdown that comes after the high of like seeing this incredible rather event that you were out there chasing as well. When you do experience these things, which, you know, some people never experience those sort of visuals in their whole life or even anything like it. Right. How do you take care of yourself after something like that? Some prayer. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of how I try to cope with stuff like that. Um, I, w I don't want to say that um, you get immune to death. Um, you can become numb to it, just kind of like with the, the, the sirens, and you just keep hearing them all the time. It's like, it's not that it's right or that it's okay. It's just something that you know that's kind of an inevitability with life or those events, I could say, something like that. So you just kind of thank God that you're still alive and pray for the family of those people and um, just kind of keep moving on from there. tornado and extreme weather chaser and meteorologist justin drake check him out at stormgasm.com after the break every time the hurricane hunter plane flies through a new storm they put a new sticker on the belly with the name of the hurricane that it flew through i'm kyone wolf this is audacious be right back This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. The hurricane I remember most was Hurricane Gloria in September of 1985. I had just turned five years old, and as it passed over us in Farmington, I remember watching it through a window, feeling full of fear and awe. Trees bent in angles I'd never seen before. Limbs snapped and flew out of sight. I wanted to be outside in it to see how it felt, and I also wanted to run into the basement with my blankie. 
Three people died in Connecticut during Hurricane Gloria, and the overall storm damage was estimated at $91 million. Lately in this country, we're getting more and more used to seeing big hurricanes. Among them were storms like Hurricane Katrina in 2005, Sandy in 2012, and Maria in 2017. This 2020 hurricane season is the second most active Atlantic hurricane season on record, behind only the 2005 Atlantic hurricane season. Since 1943, teams of people have buckled up in airplanes and flown right through these hurricanes to gather data. One of those people is Dr. Lisa Bucci. She's a hurricane research scientist or hurricane hunter with NOAA. That research has taken her into the eye of a hurricane 54 times. I asked her why she does what she does. You know, when you're looking at a satellite image, you're only looking at the top of a hurricane, right? There are some satellite instrumentations that can get what's happening at the surface, but it's hard to know what's happening in between. And some of those estimates can be, you know, have a lot of errors with them. So the best way to know exactly what's happening in a hurricane is to go there and measure it with a plane. <laughs> so tell me about these planes. What, what makes these planes different than any other plane? Um, so they are actually retired Navy planes, the P-3 Orion. And they've got four propeller engines. They come with three pilots. So two people are always piloting it and someone's always taking a break in the back. We have flight engineers. We have a flight director who's actually a meteorologist. And they're making sure that the plane is staying out of dangerous areas. We have a navigator to make sure we're not, we drop instrumentation off the plane. So we have to make sure we don't drop it on anyone and we're not in anyone's airspace that we're not supposed to be. And then we have you know, scientists on board and technicians and people who are making sure all the instrumentation is running correctly. So this plane can hold up to 20 people. And you know, it's just this really solid, heavy plane that flies at about 10,000 feet in a hurricane. It can just take a lot of those hurricane force winds that maybe other planes can't really withstand. When I think about being a hurricane hunter, and by the way, is calling you a hurricane hunter derogatory or is it cool? No, it's cool. It's, I say hurricane research scientists because <laughs> I do, it's a lot more of what my job is. You know, I only fly maybe two weeks out of the year and then the whole rest of the time is taking the data and studying it. But yeah, it's no hurricane hunters that I'm with. Cool. So when I think about flying an airplane into a hurricane, that sounds really dangerous. That sounds terrifying. But you're saying that the plane can take it and, and then some, I imagine. Yeah. And um, they've, had these planes for a while they know them inside and out and then they maintain it regularly so they just put new wings on these planes so they're good for another 20 years <laughs> i wonder if there's some way that you commemorate all the flights that an airplane goes on like when football players win a game they put a sticker on their helmet is there a way that these airplanes commemorate themselves there are um so every time the hurricane hunter plane flies through a new storm they put a new sticker on the belly of the, with the name of the hurricane that it flew through. So it has all the names. Cool. You get this whole line of just storms um, and they add new ones each year. So how do they decide which hurricanes to go into? I mean, do you go into every hurricane that ever happens? Is there like a stage they have to reach? How do you figure that out? So we, we are always looking for hurricanes at different stages in their life cycles. We're looking for ones that might rapidly intensify into really strong storms. And we're looking for actually ones that don't do that so that we have null cases. We want to know 
why something doesn't form compared to the ones that do form. There are three different groups that need information from the plane. And every time we fly a plane into a storm, each group benefits from it. So one group is the forecasters. Those are the people at the National Hurricane Center, and they're giving you your watches and your warnings, and they're telling emergency managers what the hazards are going to be. And if that from there, the emergency managers will tell you to evacuate or what to do. We also send information to our weather models. That data goes around the world. So weather models from every nation take this data and use it. And then the research community uses it. So I use it, professors use it at universities across the world. And so when we're trying to decide what storm we're flying into, it'll come from one of those groups. So maybe the forecasters say, we really need information. We need a real time picture of what's happening in the storm. Can you send the plane and go? But it still benefits the other two. Speaking of seeing things that we don't often see, tell me about this hurricane season and what the predictions are overall for how we can expect it to behave. So yeah, NOAA and several other you know research institutions have forecasted a, a higher than normal season. So they're expecting more hurricanes than usual. And, and that is something that we are seeing today. We had um, flights as early as June 5th this year, which was so early. I've never had to plan missions for something that early in the season. When do you usually go out? Usually we're looking at early July, mid-July. That's when we start getting storms that are close enough that we can, we're able to fly into them. So it seems to me, as somebody who doesn't have a degree in any of this stuff, and is just looking at headlines and seeing these terrifying maps, especially of like double hurricanes and stuff heading, barreling towards our country, I don't know anything about it. And so I think, oh, this must be climate change. How do you respond to that? Is it climate change? Is it not that simple? It isn't that simple. There are patterns in the climate that can interact with each other nonlinearly, and they can create either more or less favorable conditions in the Atlantic. And, you know, we know this, um, we can actually predict some of it. So we'll predict this climate oscillation that happens every 60 to 90 days. And we know that when it starts to get towards the Atlantic, we'll see increased activity. So if there is something out there that could form, it has a higher probability of forming. If this pattern makes it over to the Atlantic, how these patterns interact with climate change and how hurricanes interact with those patterns on top of climate change is still ongoing research. So while it's really tempting to be like, it's climate change, and it may be, but we're not there yet to say definitively is what you're saying. Right. We need more time. We need more research. A lot of it's very hot research and it's ongoing, but we just don't have the answers yet. Is there like a dream invention that doesn't exist yet or can't exist yet or is in the process of existing that would make your life getting this data so much easier? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things that we're pushing for that would make it a lot easier because part of my research is where do you need observations and when do you need them? And, you know, the answer is everywhere always, but um, <laughs> we can't do that. <laughs> so being able to, say, fly unmanned aircraft so that we could get the storms further out and be able to fly for longer, that's a dream. Um, and then have it 
uh, instrumentation that's able to measure, you know, the winds, the temperature, and the moisture, that that would be really cool. Though that doesn't totally replace actually being in the storm, because part of the instrumentation is just our eyes um, and looking out the window and seeing. I mean, there are so many things that you look out the window and you think it's just going to be a giant wall of wind and rain, but like a lot of times it isn't. There are calm areas, there's clear areas, and, and it's not always in the center. I think a lot of people think of like the classic <laughs> strong storm, but that isn't how it always is. And so it's helpful to just go see it. But my ideal would be a set of instrumentation that can measure the storm as completely as possible to help us get the best current picture of the storm so that our forecasters and our models can start from the best position possible. And hopefully that will get us the best forecast possible. You were saying that there are moments of calm and clarity in places that aren't necessarily the eye of the storm. And how is that? I mean, when I think about flying through, I think about chaos, chaos, chaos. Oh my gosh, blissful, almost euphoric, calm center of the storm for however long that lasts. And then chaos, chaos, chaos. How, where do you find calm if not in the eye? A lot of times when a storm is in its early stage, the winds are kind of forcing in, say, dry air, and they're kind of trapping really the thunderstorms to one side of the hurricane. And so, you know, we'll fly through that side and it can be bumpy, you get a lot of turbulence, but then you get to the other side where there aren't, there isn't a lot of rain at all. And it's just totally calm. I mean, I remember I flew in um, Hurricane Sandy. For a while, It there wasn't any rain in that storm. It was just totally clear and winds were roaring, but it, it, there was no turbulence. Every storm is different. <laughs> Will you take me back to your first flight into Isaac? What was going through your mind? And did you have any like pre-flight rituals or jitters for that one or anything that makes it sort of stick in your mind? What, what was it like there? I remember being so excited to be asked. That was the first thing. It was just like pure excitement. And then, you know, it hits you like they're relying on you to process the data and send it off in real time. And you can't make any mistakes. Like you have to know exactly what you're doing. And so then my excitement was followed by like, oh no, do I really know what I say I know? (laughs) And getting on the plane, I didn't know what to expect, but you get on the plane and it's kind of like your family for that eight hours. Um, They just make sure that you have everything that you need and you make sure that you're helping out however you can. Now, it feels like a weird question, but do you have a favorite hurricane that you visited? I think Hurricane Lane is my favorite. It was the prettiest eye that I've ever been in. You don't frequently get storms that have really clear eyes all the way to the surface. A lot of times in the category one, category two storms, it's a pretty wide eye. You don't get this feeling of when you're in a really major storm, you fly into the eye and it feels like you're in this stadium, except the bleachers are this wall of clouds that kind of slopes outward. You very rarely get that feeling. And Hurricane Lane probably had one of the prettiest eyes So it was blue skies above, and then you look straight down to the ocean and just see it like waves just crashing into each other beneath the plane. And I, I, yeah, I've never seen anything like that before. What does that sort of thing 
do for you? I mean, I imagine it makes you feel so small and in awe at the power of nature and also the fact that you're in an airplane in the middle of an eye of a hurricane. Like, there's so much that goes to it. So what what does it do for you being in this position over and over and over again for years and years? I mean, every time I get to see something like that, it, I feel like it reinvigorates me. And I remember why I love going into the field and using my eyes and trying to understand what's happening and asking questions. So I, I feel like every time I see something like that, I, I just get really excited and I'm like, oh, this is why I love my job. <laughs> it's why I would get back on the plane. I wonder, when you were a little kid, is this what you thought you'd be doing? No. I grew up in Michigan, um, so I didn't even really know anything about hurricanes growing up outside Detroit. And um, my grandpa still teases me about this, but I was terrified of a thunderstorm. Like, I was the kid where the thunderstorm was rolling away. People were starting to come back outside. I heard thunder and was like, oh, no, it's not safe. We got to go back inside. (laughs) So I think part of that was I was scared because I didn't understand. And then the more that I started to research meteorology, the more I found it really fascinating. And I started to explore career paths in there. There were so many applications to the job that then I was like, oh, I should go into this field. (laughs) What do you think you as a little kid would say if you could send a little postcard back to her and be like, by the way, this is my job? What would she say? She would say it was crazy. (laughs) She would want to know how I ended up there. (laughs) Because I think I thought I was going to be like a a graphic designer or um, maybe going to medicine, but I, I never expected to end up here. That was Hurricane Hunter, Dr. Lisa Bucci. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. You can find more information and subscribe to our show at ctpublic.org audacious. You can send me your thoughts and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. And if storm chasing is a part of your life, I really want to hear your thoughts on this show. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org and online use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>